0: Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. And we've come to chapter 1 today because we've got to start in the right place. We've got to start with the right foundation. And Isaiah, even before he tells us the story, which he's going to do in chapter 6, about being called in to be a prophet, he starts in chapter 1 with this very beginning, this foundation of reality. You know, one of the difficult things to do in life is to experience being told something true about yourself that you don't always like. It's kind of tough. It's what psychologists call self-awareness. And sometimes we don't love self-awareness because it can be a little bit overwhelming. It can be challenging. It could be defeating to us, really, to our ego. But it can be, although difficult and challenging, one of the most liberating things that you ever experience to be made aware of who you are. In fact, without proper diagnosis of who we are, you'll never ever find the proper solution. And so in fact, it's incredibly important. In Isaiah chapter 1, is this balance between revealing who we are and in response to that, informing us of who god is and that's the template we're going to use today to make sure we understand what isaiah chapter one is about you know we can have a lot of we can make a lot of mistakes let me say it that way without self-awareness we can make a lot of poor choices and decisions that don't really reflect the kind of people we're supposed to be without self-awareness so while today may have some difficulty for us In the long run, there's great benefit if we'll sit under the teaching of Isaiah chapter 1 to sober ourselves to realize who we are. So let me start with who we are. Number one, what is our problem? You know, regardless if you're religious or not, regardless of what worldview you hold, from the beginning of time until now, every civilization in history of mankind has tried to answer this really basic question. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with people? And whatever worldview you enter into, whatever religion you enter into, whatever thinking or philosophy you enter into, you will eventually land at this question of what is wrong with people? What's happened to us? It doesn't matter if people are religious or not religious. We get to the root of this thing that we know something is wrong. What is it? Well, the Bible presents it this way in chapter 1, verse 4. In the very first line, he says, Oh, sinful nation. Sinful nation. Our problem is, we are is what the Bible calls sinful. And you notice he doesn't just say the problem is with a few of us. Like, oh, you sinful group. Or, oh, that particular city is so sinful. He says, oh, sinful nation. It's all of us. So there is no answer to the question of what is wrong with us in our understanding that doesn't include me and doesn't include you. It reminds me of that story of G.K. Chesterton, who was a famous novelist and theologian in the early uh, 1900s, who was asked um, he lived in London. He was asked there was a lot of philosophers and world thinkers that were asked by a famous newspaper in London to write an essay of what was wrong with the world. And all these people began writing in pages and pages, giving their philosophy of what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. And G.K. Chesterton simply wrote, dear editor, in regards to your inquiry of what's wrong with the world, the answer is me. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton, he sent it in. That was his response. You see, this problem of sinfulness is a problem that all of us have. But the question we have to answer today is, what does it mean to be sinful? That word sinful has been sort of lost in our religious language that we don't really know what it means. We just know it's associated with bad things in religious morality. But that's not necessarily the depth of it. Verse 4 is going to tell you. At the end of verse 4 it tells us this, that sinfulness starts with the rejection of who God is. Sinfulness begins when we disassociate ourselves become disconnected with living in the reality of who God is that he is maker we are creation that he is sustainer and we are dependent that he is lawgiver and we are law keeper that's who he is and mankind always finds their problem at the very beginning with this idea we stop living in light of the reality of who God is. You notice he says at the end of verse 4, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. You see, the reality of God is heavy. It's difficult. It doesn't coincide with our ego very well. And so when it doesn't coincide with our ego very well, what we like to do is put it on the back burner and not pay attention to it. And Satan is constantly offering you distractions away from the sober reality of who God is. He offers you pseudo important things like being maybe building a reputation or a career or being impressive in certain things or he offers you all these things to focus on that distract you from the reality of who God is. And that's where sin begins. Number 2, sin continues with the rejection of what God has commanded us you see when you start to get some distance between what you really think about who god is and what he really is that he is creator you're created Lawgiver, lawkeeper law keeper when you separate yourself from that he says in verse four at the end of it that my people are estranged they're utterly estranged meaning they're separated they've rejected what god has commanded for life Now, what's interesting is in my work in ministry for the last 12 to 13 years, I've heard a lot of strange things, a lot of troubling things in confession times and, and challenges of Bible study, but you know what I've never heard? I have never sat with somebody who's wrestling with sin or struggling to know God, and I've never heard them say, you know, I've read the Bible, and I see what God says about how I'm supposed to live, but I am just convinced I'm smarter than God. And so I'm not going to do what he says because I'm just going to do what I think because I'm smarter than him, but I still want to be connected to him. I have never, ever in my life heard anybody vocalize that. But we live that reality constantly. You might not say, and I might not say with my mouth, that I think that I'm smarter than God, and I'm going to do it my way and not his way. But we live that all the time and he says sin begins with the rejection of who God is but it continues with the rejection of what he's commanded us to do a simple question you and I can ask on a daily basis is how can I obey the revealed will of God in my life in this moment there are simple things there are a lot of things that you don't know About life. There are a lot of unknowns that today and tomorrow and the rest of your life hold that you can't solve, and we get sort of tied up into those things that we don't know. But there are a lot of things that you do know how to live. Rarely do people wrestle between what's right and wrong, mostly, people wrestle with doing right when they want to do wrong. And sin continues when we reject what God has commanded. But sin finishes with this, number three. It ends with the crushing burden of guilt. You notice at the end of, beginning of verse four, O sinful nation, he says, a people laden, that's heavy laden, that's burdened down with iniquity. You see, the undertone of guilt just colors all of the human experience, all of the human life. This problem of sin is something that is part of our past, and it is something that continues to be part of our life today. He says in verse uh, 4 that we are offspring of evildoers, meaning that the people that have come before us struggled with sin, that they didn't live in light of reality of God, and they went their own way at certain times. But he doesn't just say the problem of sin is their fault, like I'd be a lot better off if my parents or grandparents didn't sin. He says the problem is also this in verse 4. We're offspring of evildoers, but we're also children who we ourselves deal corruptly. Sin is, yes, part of our past, but it's also part of our present. It's who we are too. And when we sin, we are, um, have this weight of guilt that falls upon us. You see, this undertone of guilt that sort of colors your life is what really is driving us. Seeking relief from this nagging pain, this nagging awareness that we are guilty of something. We know that we should be better than we ought to be. That's why self-help dominates the bookstores today. We know that we are supposed to be better than what we are. Everyone knows this. And it's this subtle feeling of guilt that drives people. It makes us all kinds of different things, like defensive or self-justifying. When you feel guilty, sometimes you back up and defend yourself to try to not feel guilty. It makes you judgmental and hypercritical. To feel better about ourselves, what we do sometimes is put other people down. Say things like, I would never do that, so I must not be as guilty as them, and I feel better. Guilt makes us sometimes live defeated and in despair. When we just know that we've been crushed by guilt, and it's our fault, it defeats us. Guilt also drives us to be ceaseless in our efforts, and sometimes even become prideful when we drive and drive to become more than, what we, uh, more than what we are, to become better, then we arrive, we think that we've done it on our own, and we become prideful. We are constantly seeking the escape of the guilt of our sin in all kinds of ways. Now, most of us are probably familiar with what this looks like outside of religion. People seeking the escape of guilt, people seeking to live their own way. We know what sinful behavior looks like outside of the realm of religion, but remember... This book, this letter, is written to God's people to awaken them to the reality of God because they've slipped. They've grown cold and distant with God, and they, too, have returned to sinful ways, although they are God's people. So what does it look like to live sinfully yet religiously? What does that look like? Point number two, our problem is not just that we're sinful. We also have an offense. What is our offense? If you look down at verse 10... Starting in verse 10, here's what Isaiah says. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Do you see what he's calling Judea and Jerusalem? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the way the Lord is seeing them in this moment. Now, verse 11, he says this, all the way from 11 to 17, he's going to tell you the thing that we do as sinful religious people that is so utterly offensive to God is offer him vain worship. One of the great dangers of children that grow up with their backside in pews is to be raised to live religiously but to remain sinful. This is a danger. If you grew up in church, this is a danger. I'm not saying you are sinful or are lost. I'm saying you need to be awakened to this potential reality. There is a danger that you need to know about. Out of all the things that could just cause God such fatigue and such anger, when His people are remaining sinful yet offering worship, He's incensed by it. And there's two ways that they do this. Here's the way they offend God. The first part is in verses 11-13, through 13, when they practice the ritual of religion without the passion of repentance. Practicing the ritual of religion without a passion for repentance inflames God. Listen to verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. Listen to this last line. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I cannot endure it. You see, God's people were practicing the rituals of their religion. Now I want to point out something. These people are worshiping the right God. And if you read carefully and were familiar with Leviticus, you would also notice they're not just worshiping the right God, they're worshiping the right God the right way. All the things that God had commanded from Leviticus for his people to do, they were doing down to the letter of the law. So worshiping the right God the right way without a repentant heart, indifferent to sin, has no power to justify us before him. You will not be justified before God if you live in your sin but think that you just worship the right way. It won't work. And God here is fatigued with this. You see, he says that they've entered his courts in his presence as if it's some common thing that they're pounding around on their feet on the pavement like they're walking in the local mall. They're strolling into his presence without any concern for their sin, without any awareness that their sin violates his holiness, They don't have any concern for that. But when you are aware of God's presence, it causes you to tremble. Every example you see in Scripture, when people come into the presence of God, they fall down before Him like they're dead. When you come into His presence. You see, the light of God has the power to drive out The darkness. And the only way to keep in the darkness is to stay away from the light. I've never gone into a room that was dark, turned on the light, and had the darkness say, no, we'd rather stay dark right now. We're not going to do it. That doesn't work, does it? Light always drives out darkness. And when you come into God's presence, it drives out your darkness. So the only way to remain sinful and worship God is to worship him at a distance without any interest in him. Vain worship that is careless and cold and indifferent towards God is a great danger, and God cannot stand it. So that's the number one offense that religious people who are still sinful have. Number two, it's this. Verses 14 through 17, they indulge in grace while ignoring injustice. Let me say it again. God's people are indulging in His grace, but ignoring injustice. Listen to verse 14. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands to pray, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Now, listen to verse 7. Here's God's complaint against them Learn to do good, seek justice, correct opposition, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Do you see what was happening to God's people? they were indulging in his grace meaning they were holding the festivals that was that the jewish people would hold festivals to remember things like the passover and the exodus they would hold feasts like that to remember how gracious god had been to them so they were holding the festival saying to god we're so thankful for your grace to us They would pray, asking for continued grace from God. God, will you help me with this? Help me with that. God's people were celebrating and asking for more and more of God's undeserved mercy and grace. And yet, around them, they would share that with nobody. You say they were indulging in grace and ignoring injustice, they conveniently ignored the needs for grace in their world. The widows and the orphans were forgotten. Those suffering injustice were just put, turned a blind eye to. And uh, oppression was just brushed aside. That's when God called them out and he said, Sodom, you're like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, do you know why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed? Most of the time we think of the sexual sin, right? That's probably why God rained down judgment. When you read Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50, it says this. Sodom and Gomorrah were rich and wealthy. And would not take care of the poor. And God said, I brought judgment upon you. You read it, check it out. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. The judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah was because they were indifferent to those who were in need around them. You see, salvation in and of itself, whether it's Israel coming out of Egypt or you coming out of sin into Jesus Christ, salvation is from a gracious God with a gracious heart, saving a helpless and enslaved people because of his will and his character and his desire to do so. And he says, go and do likewise. Meaning from our character, from our will, we should look around at those who are suffering, who are hurting, who are in need, and say, somebody was so good to me when I didn't deserve it, I'm willing to do the same. Matthew 25 tells us at the end of our life, when we stand before God in judgment, he will say, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was alone, I was sick, and I needed cared for. Where were you? That is the impetus of God's judgment. You see, our problem is that we're sinful, and that makes us then offer as God's people offensive worship. And he says at the end of chapter 1 in Isaiah that our character then changes. Listen to verses 21 to 23. He says, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness, it logged in her, but now murders. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Here's what he says. We have a problem, we're sinful. And when we practice religion as sinful people, we become offensive. And our character is broken, selfish, and impure. He says we're unfaithful and we're unrighteous. What do people like that deserve? What rightfully do people like that deserve? Over and over, he'll tell you that those who are faithless, those who are unjust, deserve to be consumed. Those who forsake the Lord deserve to be consumed. But God doesn't leave us that way. If you look down in verse 9, look in verse 9. He says, If the Lord at host had not left us a few survivors, we should have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, the story of who we are is an ugly reality. But that's not the whole story. Because there's another character in this story, and that's God. And you need to know not just who you are, That that needs to set on you. That reality needs to sober you and I. Who we are. The problem we have. But you also need to know who God is. Let me show you quickly His problem. Look in verse 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Our sinfulness, look what it's done to God. Verse 3. The end of verse 2. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner. The donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Here's God's problem with our sinfulness. He's heartbroken. He's heartbroken. It's simple as this. He says, basic simple animals know where their care comes from. They know who loves them. They know who takes care of them. And yet we arrogantly forget over and over who loves us And who cares for us. And God, because of this, is heartbroken. Yes, he's angry at the sin that makes us leave him. Yes, he has wrath at the evil that enslaves us. And all of this, his anger and his wrath is born out of his love for you. You see, anger and wrath and love are two sides of the same coin. Because he loves you so much, he has such anger towards the sin that breaks you. And he's heartbroken over this reality as a father would be over his children. But that's not just his problem. He also has an offer for us. Just like we offer him vain worship, he offers us something else. Look down in verse 18, these familiar verses. God says this in verse 18, is his offer. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become Like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's God's offer. It is not annihilation, consumption, punishment, and judgment. God comes forward in the midst of our sin and has an offer for us. He says, here's his offer. Let's reason together. Let me reason with you. My goal is not to destroy you or to enslave you, but to reason with you about two things. One, the truth about your sins. You need to know the truth about your sins. He says, yes, they are scarlet. He doesn't come and say, let's reason together. I know you've made mistakes, but it's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. He doesn't say that. He's as blunt and as forward as he can be. He says, your sins are like scarlet. They are red. They are wrong. They are blatant. I can see them. There's no brushing this under the rug. There's no minimizing this. The second thing he wants to reason with you about is this. His promise to make it clean. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be in the future white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. He has promised not only to give us the reality of our sins, but the promise of our cleansing. Now this order is important. That's why I went in the same order today with the sermon outline. This order is important because conviction of sin precedes conversion from sin. You will not leave your sin until you hate it. The reason you stick with your sin, you know why? Even though it frustrates you, even though you wish sometimes it would leave, you still secretly, there's a part of you that loves it. A part of you that believes in it. A part of you that still is comforted by it, even though it's ugly and you wish it weren't true. There's a part of you that still runs back to it because it's all you know. And until you're convicted that your sin leaves you judged by God, and until you're convicted that your sin separates you from God, you'll never be converted from it. You'll just stay in it. And you'll pretend like you can stay in your sin and worship God, and somehow doing right worship to the right God will forgive that sin, but it never works because God promises it's not your worship, it's me that will make you clean and will wash you white. But he's got one condition. He says you've got to be willing and obedient. You've got to trust him. He says, trust me and I'll make this right. But the question is, can you really trust him? That's where he finishes the end of this chapter with his promise. I'll go quickly. His promise. Listen to this. Here's his promise. One word. The word that runs through all throughout Isaiah. Redemption. You see, God does not look at this. Remember in Genesis chapter 6 when the world was sinful? And he said, ah, start over. That's not how he looks at it anymore. When he looks at this, he doesn't think restart. He thinks renew. Restore. He promises redemption. Starting in verse 24, he says, Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. The first promise God makes is that he will have relief for himself. He is the one offended by my sin. Yes, I hurt you. Yes, I trample on you. Yes, I've bothered you with my sin. There's no doubt about it. But the one who is ultimately offended by my sin is God himself because he's the maker of me. And he's designed me to live away, and I've gone my own way without him. He's offended. He says, I will get relief from that. Now notice carefully how God will avenge himself. Who will he avenge himself against? Is it you and me? It doesn't have to be, does it? He says, I will avenge myself against my enemies and my foes. Those who are against me. Ultimately, Satan is the one who is against him, and he's trying to convince people to follow him. And if you are not against God, but if you will come back and submit and trust him, you don't have to be part of the group that is avenged upon. The second promise God makes is renewal for you. Look in verse 25. I will turn my hand against you. Sounds bad, but stay with it. And I will smelt away your dross as with lie. And I will remove all your alloy. That's mixed material. And I will restore your judges as the first. And your counselors as the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Do you see what he's promising? Yes, he will turn his hand, meaning he will bring discipline. He will bring condemnation. He will bring judgment. But he takes us from unfaithful and unrighteous to faithful and righteous. It takes his hard hand. Which means that you and I have to go through the genuine process of conviction and confession, repentance, and then renewal. You can't skip those steps and get to restoration. You cannot skip conviction, confession, repentance, and get to renewal. Some of you are trying to walk that path of renewal a different way, and you won't get there. You've got to go by the hard hand of the Lord. But here's the final promise. Relief for himself, renewal for you, and redemption which requires justice. You see, in verse 27, he says this, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. You see, the word redemption means to regain something of value by a payment, meaning you pay the debt so that you can gain something back that you want. That's what redemption means. And God says that he will redeem us by two things. By justice and righteousness. But what is the just and the right thing to do for sinful people? He says in verse 28, those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. That is the just and the right thing to do for unfaithful and unrighteous people. But you and I are not consumed yet. How can God do the just and the right thing and yet redeem us. Well, this is where that figure we talked about last week shows up. The Messiah figure that is threaded throughout all of Isaiah. God himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, comes to the earth and he lives the perfectly righteous life. Righteousness. And yet, as a perfectly righteous person, he is condemned to the death of a sinner, cursed, to go hang on a cross in an undeserved fashion. And what you see happen at the cross of Jesus Christ, you've got to get this so that your mind is right about God and salvation. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the justice of God to punish sin collides with the mercy of God to save sinners. God does not offer mercy without justice, and he doesn't offer justice without mercy. He collides those two in the most brilliant, unbelievably wise way you could figure out The most perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, took the punishment of sinners so that the justice of God to punish sin was satisfied and yet the mercy of God could save sinful people. That's exactly what Paul said when he repeated this story in Romans chapter 3. Where then is our boast? How can you look at the cross and say, yeah, I've made it. My worship, my hands are clean. I've done it perfectly. I've got this figured. You can't. When you know the cross and the story of the cross, that the justice of God punished sin, and yet the mercy of God saved me, the sinner. It humbles you, and it tells you you can trust him to come back. And even if his hand is hard, which requires conviction and confession, repentance and then renewal, it's well worth it because he knows not just who I am, but he knows who I can be. And you won't get there without self-awareness, and the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. And that offer is available to you this morning. If you need to become one with Jesus, you can do that. Let's stand and sing.